John chapter 6, verse 48. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. Happy Father's Day. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Would you pray with me? Father, we are in need of your Holy Spirit to come and illuminate this passage to our hearts. We believe that we are not here by accident, but that you've actually drawn all of us here to speak to us. And so would you cultivate in us listening ears and hearts that are ready to receive your word, whether it's difficult or not. I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning that we would be stirred up to experience you in a brand new way, in a way that changes us forever. Would any of my words that is not from you just completely fall on deaf ears, Lord, but would your word ring true and clear this morning? We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one who's noticed how obsessed our culture is with food. Anyone else notice that? Any other great British Bake Off fans here? Yeah? They're just making bread, okay? It's not that big of a... And we don't even get to eat it at the end of it. We're watching them make these beautiful tiered cakes and different puddings and biscuits and, right? Like they call cookies biscuits. I don't... Anyone else notice that? But it's like a cultural phenomenon on Netflix. It's like every new season. I love it. And it's on the heels of a lot of different popular food programs over the years. Iron Chef, Top Chef, Chopped, Chef's Table, right? Which is the most like pretentious of all of them. And the place that food has in our society is so different than it used to be. The place that food once occupied in our society is gone. Because in ancient times, as an ordinary member of society, your whole day was organized around providing food for yourself and for your family. Your whole day was about getting that bread, right? Anyone? Okay. So, but today, food and the entire culture around food is industrialized. And with the advent of the gig economy and our smartphones in our hands, we can have our favorite takeout through Postmates or whatever at our doorstep with one quick search our phone, and we don't even have to think about it anymore. But the process of cooking and eating and digestion is one of the most basic and fundamental components of life, and it shapes how we talk about everything. We even use food language for how we talk about content, right? And information, we say that we're consuming content, we're digesting information. I'm going to go on a fast from social media. I'm binging the newest Netflix show, right? I don't want to know about like the opposite of what binging would be. But anyway, where we say like that was hard to swallow, right? All of this language that is food related, we talk about internalizing information and content because eating is a central metaphor, if not the central metaphor to the human experience. 
because it speaks about how something outside of us works its way into us and becomes part of us. So today we're talking about a man who said, I am bread, eat me. (laughs) Jesus told this massive crowd of people, feed on my flesh and drink my blood. And here we are today still talking about him, which it just sounds like a bad mashup of like Twilight and The Walking Dead, right? It's just like, ugh, gross. I don't even want to think about what that would be. But there's something either incredibly profound about what he was saying, or he is absolutely crazy. And that is what the series that we're going through right now is all about, uncovering what are these odd things that Jesus is saying and how are they actually profound? And it reminds me of a quote from C.S. Lewis that is pretty famous, but it bears repeating, especially at the outset of our series. And he says, a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg or a piece of bread, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, the only other option that a thinking person might offer in response to that is, well, maybe Jesus didn't say any of the things in the New Testament that it records him saying. Now, as a Jewish person myself, I can tell you that most of the people who wrote the New Testament are Jewish, and they would not have invented any such nonsense about eating a man's body or drinking his blood, and that that man claimed to be God, and these Jewish people are still following him as Messiah. That just would not happen, okay? So, due to that fact, we can pretty safely say that he actually said, I am bread. (laughs) But why use this metaphor? Why not just speak plainly? Why does Jesus have to be so controversial and confusing? Well, it's as as, uh, British, or rather American philosopher Eva Feder-Kitte said, metaphors rearrange the furniture of the mind. And Jesus understood this. What Jesus was after and what we are after today is transformation, not good ideas, not having the right principles for life or effective habits or a correct worldview, as helpful as those things are. We'll see that Jesus today, the person of Jesus, and not his teachings or ideas, but Jesus himself is the nourishment that our souls need. And he's even for you gluten-free peeps, all right? Alternative titles for this morning were Gluten-Free Jesus, (laughs) Guess Who's for Dinner?, The Jesus of Nazareth diet, or beyond the wafer. But, uh, right, I like that one too. So, but instead, we are going with the meal. But before we look at what it entailed in this meal, we have to look at what led up to Jesus proclaiming himself to be a meal. And 
The background of this statement, I am the bread of life, is the miracle of the feeding of 5,000 people in northern Israel. Jesus had just miraculously fed thousands of families following him around, listening to his teaching with what started with nothing but five loaves of bread and two fish, and they still had leftovers even though everyone ate until they were completely stuffed, which is crazy to think about. So all these people were miraculously provided for by Jesus. And the result, besides their utter amazement, was complete mayhem. These most likely poor or impoverished northern Israelites made the connection between the miracle that Jesus performed and the expectations of their long-awaited Messiah. Earlier in the book of John, chapter 6, verse 14, it says, When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So they were going to crown him king right there after he fed them, which would have started this massive political revolt against the Roman Empire, which was occupying Israel. And Jesus was like, nah, I'm not ready. So he gave him the slip and he's out. And where we pick up in the story is after Jesus had crossed to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And that same crowd that he had just fed followed him to get some more of that sweet, magical bread. (laughs) So John chapter 6, verse 25, it says, When they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? because he had actually just walked on the water across the sea. And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? What? Are you kidding me? This group of people that just pigged out on magic fish and chips are going to ask Jesus, what else you got? Anything up the sleeve? But Jesus called them out, right? He said, you're just here because you want to repeat performance. You don't really understand what's going on or who I am or what I'm saying. And the background of this miracle that Jesus performs and this whole interaction is actually an Old Testament story. It mirrors the miraculous provision for the Israelites in the wilderness in the book of Exodus when God provided this bread called manna out of heaven, out of nowhere, for the Israelites who are wandering in the desert. And these people, these Israelites whom Jesus has fed, have made the connection between what they've experienced and that miracle from long ago. But Jesus wants them to see a different connection. He wants them to see the connection between the miracle and the miracle worker, between the gift and the giver. 
So Jesus responds, as we read earlier, with the first of seven I am statements in the book of John. This one being, I am the bread of life. Now, there are two things that we need to notice about this statement. First, these statements are much more forceful than they appear in our English translation. What he's actually saying is, I myself am the bread of life. And in the Greek, it is the same phrase that is used by God when he speaks to Moses from the burning bush in the book of Exodus. I am that I am. Jesus is claiming divinity by saying this. Secondly, he's not just saying, I am God and that's why I can make bread happen out of nowhere. He's saying, I am the bread. And more graphically, the bread which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And we have to sit with how strange that sounded. It sounded just as strange to the first century hearers of his words. But now, for them, following Jesus is this very popular thing because he can provide bread out of nowhere so they don't have to constantly work their entire day for provision. But he knows that most of the people around him are only following him for what they can get out of it. Only as long as he is making life easier for them. So now he's challenging them to accept his true identity because they wanted Jesus to deliver a physical resource to sustain life temporarily, and he is wanting to provide himself as a never-ending resource to bring eternal life. And they were unknowingly settling for less than they truly needed because it was all they knew to ask for. They wanted to know where the next meal was going to come from rather than trust in the character of the one who would provide for them. And that is actually a question for those of us here who claim to follow Jesus, whether we are following him as a means to an end, whether there is daily fulfillment and just kind of like a pick-me-up that we're looking for every day when we look to follow Jesus rather than being with him and viewing him as the source of life. Because Jesus is not promising to deliver these things that they are after or that we are after in the ways that we want and when we want. He is promising the kind and the quality of life that is worth living no matter what we are experiencing. And because of this miracle, they know that Jesus is the gateway to providing the kind of life that they would want and need, but he knows that they only view him as a means to an end. And it is true that Jesus is the source of life, but he is challenging them to realize that he is also the substance of life. He's not the key to finding the good life. He is the good life. But we can't just sit here in church 2,000 years later and not feel the full weight of how weird those words sound. We have to put ourselves in the shoes of those first century Jewish listeners. And if you're sitting here today thinking, I still don't get it, neither did they. <laughs> you're in good company. So let's read on in verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, 
saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living father sent me, I live because of the father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died, like the manna in the wilderness. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So let's stop for a moment to notice that the audience and the setting of this conversation have changed. Now he's speaking to the Jews in the synagogue. So the author wants us to notice that something much more significant is happening here. Now it's not just a large crowd of people getting confused, it's the Jews, which is a term that the author uses in the Gospel of John to speak specifically about the religious leadership of the people. So now Jesus is being officially questioned about his activity as a miracle worker in the synagogue. So it's more intense. So what we're going to see now is the satisfaction that Jesus provides. So instead of backing up and saying, wait, 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 you guys didn't understand me. Let me explain it. He says, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So Jesus presses deeper into the metaphor. I am the bread. No, unless you eat it and drink my blood, you have no life. Whenever we use a metaphor and it like doesn't really land, we kind of go like, oh, wait, let me try something else. You guys didn't understand me, right? But Jesus keeps digging into it. Why is that? He's trying to drive the significance of faith and belief deeper into our souls. Belief is such a shallow concept in our society. And Christians are so guilty of saying, believe in Jesus and you'll have eternal life and that's it. See you later. Bye. And the Bible does say that, right? It does say believe in Jesus and you'll have eternal life. But our concept of belief is so weak that we think it just means to intellectually agree with an idea in the abstract. But Jesus will not let us stop with our minds or even with our hearts. It must affect our daily living. So this metaphor of eating his flesh and drinking his blood actually fleshes out the abstract notion of belief. You see what I did there? Fleshing out? (laughs) Fleshes, flesh. Anyway, okay. So basically what we have to understand here is that there is food that when you eat it leads to death and there is food that when you eat it leads to living forever. Now, where have we heard that before? Ah, in the Garden of Eden right? The very first book of the Bible in the book of Genesis, there is a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and there is a tree of life. 
and one tree was a source of eternal life and paradise with God, and the other tree caused Adam and Eve to believe that God was holding out on them from the good life, and they could do a better job of providing for themselves. In Genesis, God says, if you eat this fruit, you will surely die. And Jesus here says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, you have no life in you. Food has always had a significant place in God's story. And it always plays a pivotal role in how we remember what God has done. When God wanted my ancestors, the Israelites, to remember their exodus from slavery in the land of Egypt, he gave them a meal called Passover, which was commemorated by eating a lamb, an unleavened bread and bitter herbs, and drinking wine. And that is the meal that prefigured what Jesus is describing here, what we often call communion or the Lord's Supper. And when Jesus celebrated Passover with his disciples, just moments before he went to the cross, he took that traditional Passover bread and wine and said, this is my body and this is my blood. So that meal and the meal that Jesus is talking about here are symbols that point to the most radical and polarizing truth in human history, and that is that God himself became a man in order to have flesh that could be sacrificed for our sin. And that is how the book of John begins. John chapter one, verse one says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh. And this is what Jesus is talking about here. However, unlike what the Catholic Church teaches, we don't actually believe that the practice of eating bread and drinking wine is actually eating and drinking Jesus himself, a doctrine which is called transubstantiation. The bread and the wine actually don't become Jesus when you eat them in the same way that we believe that baptism doesn't actually save people, but it's a symbol of going from death to life. And in the same way, the practice of communion or eating the Lord's Supper is not a necessary thing to be saved, but it is an elemental and incredibly physical thing that we do that points beyond itself. It's a symbolic way of doing exactly what Jesus is telling his followers to do here, to believe that his sacrifice is effective and that it exchanges the merits of his sinless life for our lives. So in one way, Jesus is speaking metaphorically, and in another, he's actually not. While he's not telling us to become cannibals and eat his flesh, he actually did give his flesh and blood to be sacrificed for us. And the bread and the wine of the Passover meal were symbols of his body and blood, and they were also symbols of the body and the blood of the lamb that died to bring Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And just like we saw last week, when Pastor Lorenzo taught us, is that Jesus is introduced as the Lamb of God, whose body and blood became the ultimate sacrifice to bring us out of the bondage 
of sin. Now, all of this is still very strange and hard to understand, and so we're still in good company if we don't quite get this, because neither did his disciples. In verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So the audience changes again. It goes from a crowd to the Jewish leadership to hear his disciples. And it is his disciples who say, this is hard to understand. Literally, they say, who can stomach it? Who can swallow these words? So Jewish law, like I said earlier, forbids the practice of eating or drinking blood. So for them, Jesus's teachings went from weird to what seemed like heresy. They can't understand the spiritual truth of his message, and so they're very, very close to writing him off completely. And the irony is thick. All he is asking them to do in saying, eat me, is to trust his words spiritually. But they're getting hung up on the difficulty of the metaphor, and so they say, who can swallow these words? And Jesus notices that they're offended. He says, are you offended at this? And the word that he uses is actually scandalized. So religious people, like his disciples, and like some of us here, never really want God to upset our paradigm or our terminology for faith. So we become really good at rationalizing away some of the hard things that Jesus has to say that we don't want to deal with. I'm sure some of us here today can think of some of the things that are difficult that Jesus has said to us even recently. Like how about love your enemies? I'm sure there are those of us here who are struggling with people, struggling to get along with somebody who you're supposed to be loving. And our generation, our culture is so focused on self-care that we neglect the discomfort of going out of our way to love someone unlovable, love our neighbors as ourselves. Maybe Jesus is also telling you today to slow down. We don't like to hear that, right? In our culture of hustle and work for acceptance. Maybe Jesus is also telling us today that the growth that you're experiencing or not feeling like you're experiencing is going to be slower than you thought. 
that there's no silver bullet in discipleship. When we don't see progress or results immediately in our day and age, we tend to give up. But it is very difficult. We have to acknowledge how scandalous it is to receive Jesus' words. And it is actually hard to understand him specifically because they do not come from flesh. And this is what Jesus says in verse 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The trouble we have with Jesus and his words is not so much that they're difficult to understand, but that they are to be discerned by faculties that are beyond human reason. It's not that they're irrational, it is that they are meta-rational. The spiritual aspects of life, of human life, cannot be perceived unless they are revealed by God. If they could be figured out without God revealing them, if we could just figure that out by ourselves, then God would not be God and he would not be worth our worship because we cannot grasp these spiritual matters with our finite minds. We must instead believe them. And Jesus pressed further into their misunderstanding because he was not interested in explaining himself because he knew that people would only believe his words if God is the one drawing them, not because they're persuaded by his rhetoric or his public speaking skills. It even says that he knew from the beginning who would believe and who would not. But that did not stop him from teaching everyone who would listen. Jesus knows that we have a hard time understanding his words. He knows that. But he also knows that they are the nourishment that we need. Like a sick person who is being nourished back to health, he does not refrain from giving us the meal that we need just because it's going to be difficult to take in. The quality and the kind of life that Jesus is offering cannot be achieved by the means that we have available to us, not through hard work, not through dedication or reason or even education. All of these efforts fall short because they are confined to a limited aspect of reality that Jesus calls the flesh. Jesus is telling us that spirit and flesh have been divorced since the fall of mankind in that garden. And the way to unite them is a spiritual answer to a spiritual question, but it is as simple as receiving a meal. Where humanity was doomed through one meal, through another we can be saved. Remember in the Garden of Eden when, Eden, when Eve took the fruit because she was told, you will not die. That was only true in the physical sense. In a spiritual sense, humanity was doomed. And in this complete reversal, Jesus tells us that this bread he is offering will enable us to live forever but we often reject this meal which will offer us spiritual and eternal life because we are more concerned with maintaining our ideal form of our current existence. But Jesus is not interested in allowing us to preserve our current form of life. 
Eternal life cannot be merely stapled on to our current mode of existence. One must be exchanged for another. But Jesus says, there are some of you who do not believe. And that is certainly true today, even in this room. There are some of us who have been sitting here in these chairs for quite a long time now, week after week, for various reasons. Maybe you've stuck it out because of a friend or maybe because it hasn't become too weird or uncomfortable yet to be at church. This might be what pushes you over the edge in the other direction. But it certainly did as well for the disciples in Jesus' time. Read verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Many disciples turned back. Is it because Jesus is not an effective communicator? Did he just not do a good job? Did he not want the people to understand him? No. Just as the book of John diagnoses earlier in chapter three, it says, people loved the darkness rather than the light. There were people, even most people who were following Jesus up to that point who were only following him because of the immediate benefits to them. And these are the same people who had just experienced Jesus's miraculous provision. Seeing is not believing. They wanted Jesus to become some kind of like spiritual olive garden, right? Never-ending breadsticks. Love those breadsticks. Because their whole day was organized around it, right? They needed to get bread every day and it took all day. And if they couldn't be sure that he was going to give them what they believed they needed, it was not worth sticking around to deal with the confusion. What are these things for us today? If you were sitting in the room with Jesus, what would be the last straw for you? What would you ask him for? Well, it's been great spending time with you, Jesus. We've talked about a lot of great things. We've had some laughs. But do you think I could have this? And Jesus says today, I am that thing. We say, I don't want you. I want you what you've promised me. I want what I'm owed. That is often the way that we act towards Jesus because we believe that like Adam and Eve, God is withholding something good from us. And if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe you're in the position of the disciples as well who are asking him for a sign so that you can believe in him. You want just a little bit more, a little bit more proof. He's not going to give another sign, but he did give his son. God gave his son and it is enough because we need to admit that our hunger is a spiritual hunger. 
that there actually isn't anything in this life that it can offer us that cannot be taken away. That all of the things that we desire instead of him are actually lenses through which we can see what our true needs are. Food, relationships, comfort, the acceptance of other people, or purpose, or meaning, these are in fact spiritual needs that can only find satisfaction in him. And you might not be at the place this morning where you can see this, but Jesus is waiting. He's not begging you to follow him, just as he says in this passage. As he turns to the 12 disciples who are left, after most of them abandoned him, he says, do you wanna go away as well? He's not begging them to stay. He's not saying, you guys can't leave me. You guys are all I have. No, no, no. He says, if things are getting too crazy for you, there's the door. And we need to acknowledge the difficulty of what he's saying. If we are here for the wrong reasons, he is inviting us to leave. The point is not to stick it out somewhere, you know, for the long term, if we actually believe that Jesus is leading us somewhere else, but we need to realize that the motivation to give up and to be done is the same self-protective reaction that caused these disciples to give up on the life that they really needed. So what are we going to do with this life that we are offered? Have we gotten to the point in our lives where we can say, with Peter, to whom shall we go? Have we exhausted all other options available to us? Or do we think that there's still something there? What this passage teaches us is that wherever Jesus is, wherever he is leading you, that is where the life that you need is found. Only in him, no matter how weird it gets, not having one foot out the door when suspicions are confirmed, not just as long as you feel your needs are being met or your expectations of what things ought to look like are being fulfilled, and definitely not, where can I be fed? (laughs) Because Jesus is the meal. Amen? So now we're going to have an opportunity to partake of this meal. There are going to be people on this wall and on this wall who want to pray for you. This is an opportunity to commune with God in the very way that Jesus is telling us to in this passage. To pray, to have communion with God, to have somebody else pray for you is like a rich meal with friends. If you do not know where you stand with Jesus you've been frustrated by some of his words and you do not know how to respond, but you want to, go to them and ask for prayer. If you don't don't even know what you need prayer for, go to them and ask them for prayer. They're not gonna interrogate you. Allow our church to intercede for you. We're also going to participate in communion, as we talked about, allowing this physical act to give our souls room to meditate on what God has done for us in the gospel, that his body and his blood were sacrificed for us, his life in exchange for ours. So as you take the double stacked cup, the juice representing his blood and the wafer representing his body, 
Give yourself room to contemplate what he has done for us. We're also going to worship in song. I don't care if you sing well or not, or if you think you sing well or not, or if the person behind you sings well or not, and it's distracting, just sing. There's these carpets up here to my right and my left. You can come and kneel and sing there as well. But lastly, partaking of the meal involves allowing God's word to permeate our minds and our hearts every single day. That is why we read scripture as a church together in our Bible reading plan. And in the book of Deuteronomy, as Moses was talking to the Israelites who had been delivered and who were still in the wilderness, he said, he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And as we saw today, Jesus himself is that word. So let's pray together.